Alright friends, I'll go ahead and get started here. Welcome to uh, welcome to Dirt Bike Church. I'm Chuck Leemaster with Team Faith and always a privilege to be with you. And it's been, uh, we're coming down to the end of the season here, final race. A little bit bittersweet, we'll go home and get rested up and, and uh, come back out again for more uh, this coming spring. But for now, uh, today, or actually yesterday and today, I was able to put out a couple of pumpkins in front of the, in front of the booth here. And I, I said, hey, write down what you're thankful for. So I haven't looked at these, but let me go ahead and look and see what uh, some people are, are thankful for. Let's see, salvation through Christ and family. That's, that's awesome, salvation. Um, somebody's happy or thankful for Hayden. That's good. Somebody else is happy for their family. Trucks. Somebody's thankful for trucks. Somebody's thankful for girls. Trevor, that wasn't you, was it? Okay, okay. <laughs> Somebody else is thankful for Chuck. Well, that's nice. I appreciate it. Somebody's, somebody's thankful for dirt. All right. Dirt bike. I see dirt bike. I see a bunch of dirt bikes on here. A dry motor home. Boating. I don't know who's thankful for boating on the weather that we've been having, but, uh, man, that's, that's good. Uh, my grandpa and my father. That's really touching. Let's see. Uh, ha- Healthy life and sunshine. We spilled over. Let's see. We're also happy for puppies. I saw a couple puppies that came to church today. That's great. We like puppies. Pineapples. Well, I hope they're not thankful for pineapples on their pizza because that's just weird. Kinley. Somebody else is thankful for mud boots. This was a cool idea. You know, just put it out a pumpkin. Write down what you're thankful for. We're coming into the Thanksgiving season. And this is, uh, you know, we're going to go home. We're going to go and have holidays with our friends and with our families. And, uh, you know, what are you, what are you thankful for? So I'm going to start us off. That's obviously what we're talking about tonight. But let's go to the Lord and have a word of prayer before we begin. Lord, thank you so much for today. Thank you for the opportunity to be at a racetrack and to have church. You are where we are. You come and meet us right where we are. And so would you meet us tonight? Give me the words to say to challenge and inspire people to go all in and follow you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, with the thought of Thanksgiving, I want to turn your attention to, uh, to Luke chapter 17. Verse 11 starts out this way. It's talking about Jesus. It says, On the way to Jerusalem, he was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. <clears throat> now, anytime, anytime we ever have dirt bike church here at the racetrack, we always want to put things in context because context just makes it come to life and it makes it real for us right where we are in our lives. So the context of this is Jesus is on the way to Jerusalem. It's the final months of his ministry. Okay, he's been going out for almost three years now. He's been going out and he's been doing miracles. He's been healing people. He's, he's already fed the 5,000 people. He's walked on the Sea of Galilee and it's coming down to the final months of his ministry. He's beginning to make his way down to Jerusalem where he will ride into Jerusalem on, on a donkey. And it's been quite the journey. Matter of fact, this is chapter 17 in Luke. When he first wrote his letter to Theopolis, he didn't write it in chapter and verse. We did that later on so that we could break it down and have easy reference. But this is Luke 17. His journey to Jerusalem actually started back in Luke chapter 9. It says that when the days drew near for him to be taken up, when the days drew near for Jesus to be taken up to be arrested, he set his face to Jerusalem. That means he turned with intention. He's going to go to Jerusalem. He's up north. If you can picture Israel, the, the, the ancient nation of Israel, 
not that much different from the modern nation of Israel. It's kind of long. It's divided into, in biblical times, it's divided into three different segments. Up north, you've got the region of Galilee, because that's where the Sea of Galilee is at. And you've heard, if you've been around for a while, you've read the Gospels, you know quite a bit about the, the region of Galilee. Because in the region of Galilee, there are places like Capernaum and Bethsaida. And there's Nazareth. You, everybody's heard of Nazareth. That's all up in the, in the region of Galilee with the Sea of Galilee. All right, in the south end of Israel is the, the region of Judea. And down in Judea, you've heard about this too, because in Judea, there's a little tiny town about two miles outside of Jerusalem, which is in the, the region of Judea. There's a little tiny town called Bethlehem. And then there's Bethany that's down there where Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. And in between these two regions, you got Galilee and Judea down here. In between these two regions, there's the region of Samaria. The dreaded Samaritans. If you've been around church culture, you've heard of the Samaritans. You know the Jews and the Samaritans don't like each other. But that's the region. And so in Luke chapter 9, it says, The days drew near for him to go down and be taken up. He set his face to Jerusalem. And so as he was traveling from the north to the south, about 80 miles, to get down to Jerusalem, he had to go through this region of Samaria. And so Luke says that he would send messengers ahead into the villages to prepare the way. However, the Samaritans would not receive him because his face was set to Jerusalem. And this is the part where James and John, Jesus' two disciples, two of them, come up to him and say, the Samaritans won't let us stay in the village tonight. Do you want us to call down fire from heaven on them? Now, obviously, James and John didn't have the power to call down fire from heaven, but if Jesus said it was okay, there's power in Jesus, Jesus, will you let us call down fire from heaven on these guys? I mean, I am right there with Has anybody ever want to call fire from heaven on somebody? Yeah, amen. Okay, I'm that kind of guy. Jesus rebukes all of us. He rebuked James and John right then. He's like, no, that's not what we're going to do. He rebuked them. He said, let's just go on to the next village. So they go on to the next village. So yeah, the Samaritans and the Jews, they don't get along. If you're new to church culture, you're hearing this, you're like, well, why didn't they get along? I mean, I grew up in church all my life. It was just given. The Jews and Samaritans don't get along. That was no big deal. But if you're new to this, you'd be like, well, why didn't, why didn't the Jews and Samaritans get along? You have to go back about 500 years before Jesus was on this earth. 500 years before Jesus was on this earth, the Old Testament... Well, what we know is the Old Testament. The nation of Israel that's described in the Old Testament, God had kept sending prophets to them to say, hey, you guys are living wild and wicked. God's going to get your attention. You're going to be defeated. You're going to be taken into captivity. A foreign power is going to come in and conquer you. Y'all got to pay attention. The Israelites didn't pay attention. Nebuchadnezzar comes in and conquers Jerusalem, hauls off all the good people. Hauls off all the noble people, all the good-looking people, all the rich people. Everybody here would be safe, okay? <laughs> We'd all, be, we'd all be out in the sticks. They left all the rednecks, okay? They left, they left the down-to-earth people, okay? People that uh, weren't rich, weren't of nobility, weren't good-looking, people that drove diesel trucks, you know, left all those people down there. And so they got to stay in the land, whereas all the good people get taken off into captivity. Well, through the years, the conquering kings, Nebuchadnezzar lost the kingdom, the kingdom's lost, Babylon gets conquered. Through the years, the conquering king said, hey, you know, this region of, what's that place called? Oh, Israel. You know, we own that now because we conquered, because we conquered the Babylonians. We own that now. We ought to colonize that. And so the uh, the, the, the Assyrian king, Sargon II, and 
I can't even pronounce his name, Ersahadon or something like that. Josephus, the, the uh, Jewish historian, not part of the Bible, but secular history tells us that these two Assyrian kings said, let's colonize what's left of Israel. And so they sent their own people, much like the colonists that came to the United States on behalf of King George. Their early colonists came over to make this England, right? Well, you know, because of the Revolutionary War, we're America. The new Americas became the United States of America. Israel, the colonists come in. There's a remnant of Jewish people there. The colonists come in. What do you think happened? Intermarriage. Okay, so the, the Israelites married with some of these pagan nations. And they, they actually ended up having their own hybrid religion. There was a time when a priest... Nehemiah, you can read about it in the Old Testament. Nehemiah comes back, he rebuilds the, the uh, temple in Jerusalem there. There was a priest in the, in the temple there, Josephus tells us, that uh, was married to one of these, uh, to the governor's daughter, the, the Syrian governor's daughter. So there was an intermarriage there. Of course, God says in the Mosaic law, the law that he gave to Moses, says, don't be intermarrying with these people. So all the other priests are like, hey, dude, you can't do that. You need to divorce her or not be a priest or something. And so so this guy's like, well, I can't divorce her. You know, it's, it's kind of a political thing. And so the girl's dad is an important governor. And he says, hey, I'll tell you what, Manasseh, I think was his name, Manasseh, I'll tell you what, you can go over here and we'll just build you your own temple. And you can do things here. I mean, you can have the same, real. why do you have to be in Jerusalem anyway? You can have the same temple over here on Mount Gerizim. Okay, we'll do that. So now, now you understand, if you fast forward 500 years later into Jesus' time, now it makes a whole lot of sense when Jesus sits down with the, with the woman at the well. When you read in John chapter 4, the woman at the well, there's a, Jesus is at this mountain in Judea, I'm sorry, not Judea, but he's in Samaria. And he's apparently near Mount Gerizim, where that temple had been built by the, what became known as the Samaritans. And the Samaritans would worship here, and they'd have their, their kind of their half-Jewish half religion thing. And then down south was Jerusalem, where the real Jews went to worship. And so now Jesus, with the woman at the well, he says, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain, Mount Gerizim, you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. And he went on to say, Salvation is of the Jews. In other words, the Jews are right. This is where God told them to worship, was in Jerusalem. But Jesus said, I'm telling you, woman, the hour is coming. Behold, the hour is even now that true worshipers will worship in spirit and in truth. In other words, true worshipers will be able to worship anywhere, including Crawfordsville, Indiana. But this is why it's so important. you got this Mount Gerizim in Samaria, and you got this hybrid religion, and you got, well, there's a lot of racism, too. you got these hybrid people, too. The dreaded Samaritans. So that's kind of that's where we're at right now. Jesus has set his face to go down south to Jerusalem. He comes to a Samaritan village. You're like, no, you can't stay here because you're headed to Jerusalem. You guys are all uppity and stuck up about that Jerusalem place. Can't stay here. James and John are like, hey, we'll call fire. No, you can't do that. So here we go. Luke chapter 17. On the way to Jerusalem, he was passing between Samaria and Galilee. So he's still in the northern region here, coming out of Galilee, coming down through Samaria. As he entered a village, he was met by ten lepers who stood at a distance and lifted up their voices, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. A leper, not a leopard, a leper, somebody that's afflicted with leprosy. It's a skin disease. 
Matter of fact, what we know of leprosy today, it's bad. It's really, really bad stuff. We read about it in the New Testament quite often. We read about leprosy. We know it's a skin disease back then. Matter of fact, what it, it, it's actually a bacteria. And we still today, we don't know a whole lot about this bacteria. We believe that it's passed on through, um, through coughing or sneezing. But it can actually incubate for up to 20 years before any symptoms show. But when the symptoms show, it usually shows on the face and it's a pink blotchy spot. Well, those pink blotchy spots, they end up spreading to the whole body and then they become a tumor. And they become hideous. The skin turns white. It becomes flaky. It becomes dry. It becomes dead. The leprosy, the bacteria, the, the bacillum, I guess is the scientific word, it attacks the internal organs. It attacks the bone marrow, the production of the red blood cells. And it causes, because the blood, red blood cells are, are inhibited and they're not able to perform their job, the blood supply to the outer extremities of the fingers and toes is cut off and it causes a knurling of the, of the hands and arms and of the fingers. And over time, left untreated, which back in Jesus' day there was no treatment because Louis Pasteur has not, has not been around. We haven't, uh, well, that's Pasteur's, whoever. <laughs> penicillin, that's why the penicillin hadn't been invented yet, right? And so the fingers and toes would actually be absorbed in, back into the body and it would make it appear that the, the fingers and toes had actually fallen off, which sometimes they actually would because one of the worst side effects of leprosy was not only would you go blind, but you would lose all the nerve feelings everywhere. The ends of the nerves would completely go numb. Which sounds cool because you could, you know, you wouldn't have to worry if that thing's really cold or if it's really hot. You could be a hero. You could put up with all kinds of pain. But it's not cool because the pain reflexes of the body say, hey, don't touch that hot stove. You'll be permanently injured. Whereas a person with leprosy could touch the hot stove, not even know it. And then they'd have this open sore. And because it's, there's no pain, they wouldn't take care of that open sore and it would become infected. And eventually, and it was very, very common with leprosy to have gangrene and dead, rotting flesh. And eventually, fingers and toes really would fall off. And the smell of a leper colony is just unbelievable, I am told. And so, if you were afflicted with leprosy in the biblical times, you were ostracized. You were put out. Uh, you were put out of the colony. Today, we know leprosy. It's actually called Hansen's disease, the CDC the Center for Disease Control tells us that there are about 150 episodes of leprosy in the United States every year. But since it can be detected early on, it can be treated. It's actually treated, I think there's a cocktail of three drugs that they have to give you for up to two years to cure it. So because this is such a bad disease, the people would be put out of the camp. They'd be put out of the village. And this goes all the way back to the law of Moses. When God gave Moses the law, you can read about it in Leviticus, says uh, God said the leprous person who has the disease shall wear torn clothes let the hair of his head hang loose he shall cover his upper lip and cry out unclean unclean he shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease he is unclean he shall live alone his dwelling shall be outside the camp I think it's kind of cool through all that the Old Testament laws and rules sometimes we don't understand them given our very rudimentary understanding of leprosy today I think it's kind of cool that God said that, hey, if somebody has leprosy, they have to cover their upper lip. Basically, they have to have something covering their whole mouth. Why would that be? Well, what we know is leprosy is passed by cough, <coughs> coughing and sneezing. So God's just kind of cool. You know, he knows what he's doing. He really does. 
But the long and the short of it is, is that a leper would be put outside of the colony. They would be alone. They'd be taken away from their family. No wife, no children, no hugs, no job, no money. They'd be all alone except for other people that were afflicted with the same disease. And you could have your own leper colony. But it gets worse than that. Because leprosy was also viewed as a divine punishment from God. And people got this idea actually from what happened in the Old Testament. If you're a student of Old Testament history, you remember a time that Miriam was Moses' sister. Miriam was complaining against Moses, and God had to come down and set the record straight, and he punished Miriam. And that punishment was, you're going to be a leper for seven days. So for seven days, he had leprosy head to toe. That was her punishment. There's another story in Second in First Kings chapter 5 of a pagan uh, military leader named Naaman. Naaman was, uh, had leprosy, and he sought out the prophet Elisha. Elisha said, well, go dip yourself seven times in the Jordan River, and Naaman did that, and he was cleansed, and he was cured, but he was a pagan. He wasn't a Jew. He was, he was, uh, he, God obviously used leprosy to get his attention. And then King Uzziah, in 1 Kings chapter 15, I think it is, King Uzziah was a good king, except he didn't tear down the pagan shrines and the idols, and so God struck him with leprosy, and he died a leper. And so it was very, very common to understand, well, leprosy, something bad has happened to you? God's punishing you. (laughs) Today, in modern-day America, you ever heard everything happens for a reason? I know that term gets thrown around all the time. I don't buy into it. I don't buy into it at all. Matter of fact, 2004, my best friend, he was actually my cousin, my best friend. Uh, I was best man at his wedding. We grew up together deep, deep bond there, like a David and Jonathan kind of thing. He was killed by a drunk driver. And everybody said, well, you know, well, not everybody, but there were some certain people that came up and they were well-intentioned. They had good, good intentions. You know, everything happens for a reason. And I got to thinking about that. So God killed my cousin? No, I don't think so. I think the drunk driver killed my cousin. I think that there was a sinful man who made a conscious decision to drink alcohol to excess and then get into his pickup truck and drive home. And being so drunk, the guy drove on the wrong side of the road over a blind hill, met my cousin on his BMW 1200 motorcycle, and that was the end of it. I don't think everything happens for a reason. I think we live in a broken and fallen and sinful world. Praise God that he's going to restore that through his son Jesus, that someday Jesus is going to make right the wrongs that we've experienced in this life. And I don't know how that looks. I don't know what the final story is be. But I know that God is going to make it all right. But on this earth, everything happens for a reason. No, I don't buy into it. But that was a sincerely held religious belief 2,000 years ago. Everything was for a reason. If it was good, God was happy with you. If it was bad, God is punishing you, especially when it came to stuff like leprosy. And since there was no teen faith preacher walking around to set the record straight, that whole idea just continued to grow and grow. And when you read through the New Testament Gospels, you can kind of see that attitude in there. But there was Jesus. There was God's Son that came down to this earth who kept proclaiming a new gospel, talking about a new kingdom, the kingdom of God. Not the little K kingdom, but the kingdom of God. Unfortunately, all the people rejected Jesus. They didn't want to hear it. They were happy that Jesus could heal people. They were happy that he could feed people. But Son of God, forgiveness of sins? No, I don't buy it. I don't think so. Was the attitude of the day. Instead, they wanted to make Jesus that little K king. We talked about this two weeks ago. I don't want you to be Lord and Messiah. I just want you to defeat the Romans. 
And so Jesus walks into this village. There are ten lepers there that saw him. They stand at a distance, at a distance as they were supposed to do, and they raise up their weak, raspy voices because leprosy affects the vocal cords as well, and they cry out, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. I find it interesting that they say Jesus, Master, because when you read the Gospels, the only people that ever call him Master are his closest followers, and these ten. Just kind of cool. These guys apparently know about his reputation. So they cry out, Master, have mercy on us. And I don't read in that that they have great faith there. Matter of fact, I think that their faith uh, seems kind of a, a meager faith there. But what options do they have? They have no friends. They have no family. They have no jobs. They have no money. They have no resources. They have leprosy. And they hear that Jesus is coming into town, and there's something different. About Jesus can heal people. I'll give it a try. Jesus, have pity on us. And so they cry out, Jesus, help me. Luke says that when Jesus saw them, he said, go show yourselves to the priest. That's kind of a funny thing to say, isn't it? Jesus, help me. Go show yourself to the priest. Why didn't Jesus say, you're healed? I mean, he'd done that before. Or why didn't he say, hey, spit in the dirt and make some mud and put that on your sword? He did that before. Why didn't he just touch them? He'd done that before. Instead, he says, go show yourself to the priest. Isn't it really cool how God meets us right where we are? He gives us what we need. It's different from what he gave that person, but what he gives me is right what I need. Right here in this story, Jesus says, I see your meager faith. Let me see you put your faith into action. Go show yourself to the priest. According to that Old Testament law that God had given to Moses, if a person gets leprosy, they're put outside of the camp. If they're cured of their leprosy, if the leprosy goes away, if there's a miracle, whatever, what you have to do is go show yourself to the priest. And so the people would go show themselves to the priest, and if the, and the priest was actually instructed, well, check them out. And if they check out good, good bill of health, then here's some sacrifices you have to make. Here's a ceremony you have to do. There are a few things that you have to do to, you know, we'll have a happy leprosy-free celebration, I suppose is what it is. But anyway, the custom was go show yourself to the priest. So Jesus says, I see your meager faith. Go show yourself to the priest. Take that first step of faith. Put your faith into action. And so the ten lepers, they walk away. And as they went, they were healed. (laughs) Actually, the way that Luke writes it, he says, when Jesus saw them, he said, go and show yourselves to the priests. And they went and they were cleansed. It's It's so understated. It's so calm. Like, yeah, it's just another day for God. Go show yourself to them. And they're healed. I mean, Luke is so understated in this. But can you imagine the excitement of the ten lepers? Like, wow, look at this. I've been living in a leper colony, not able to see my wife, not able to hug my kids, not able to have a job. I've been begging for money, begging for food. I'm healed. Can you imagine the excitement that these guys would have? I sure can. You know, as they they go, their meager faith is, is, is healed. They're excited. Then one of them, when he saw he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice, and he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now, he was a Samaritan. One. Uno. One of the ten turn around, come back, and give Jesus thanks. But do you notice what he does, actually? He gives thanks, but what did he do? He fell at the feet of Jesus, and he worshipped. Why? 
who, who are you allowed to worship? Especially if you know anything about the Old Testament law. God said, thou shalt not have any other gods before me. He clarifies it a little bit later on in Exodus chapter 34. He says, you shall worship no other god. <laughs> and yet, what does this man do? He worships Jesus. He testifies to the deity of Jesus Christ. He acknowledges that Jesus is Lord. He acknowledges that Jesus is who Jesus said that he was. Because all through this time, all through, when you read the, the uh, Gospels leading up to Jesus entering into Jerusalem, you're reading a story of Jesus proving that he is indeed who he says he was. That he says, I have the power to forgive sins. Everybody grumbles. All the religious leaders grumble like nobody has the power to forgive sins except for God. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and they just, the people don't get it. And so we see that this man falls, he worships, it says, and he was a Samaritan. Hold that thought. Then Jesus answered. He said, we're not ten cleansed. Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except for this foreigner? And he said, rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. Now, I like the way that John MacArthur puts it. John, I don't often get into the Greek words, but John MacArthur did. He says, this Greek word that's used when Jesus says, rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well is... Although it's translated in English as well, it's not the same word as what was used a verse before when, when it says that they were healed. They're going their way and they are healed. The Greek word for that is, uh, is actually iomea. It means healed or made well. The word when Jesus says your faith has made you well is this Greek word. When Luke wrote it, it was in Greek. It's this Greek word called sz, S-Z. And it means salvation. It means saved. It's the same word that Jesus used when there was the, the uh, sinful woman comes and anoints his feet uh, and, and washes his feet with her, with her tears and with her hair. And everybody that's sitting right there says, oh my gosh, Jesus, if you knew what kind of woman this was that was touching you, you would not let her touch you. And Jesus knew what they were thinking. He says, oh yeah, she loves much because she was forgiven much. And then he says to her, go your way. Your faith has made you, says, your faith has saved you. Your sins are forgiven you. And of course, all the religious leaders, the Pharisees are like, hey, nobody can forgive sins but God. And Hello, you guys still aren't getting it, are you? And so in this case here, it's the same word. Jesus tells this Samaritan, he says, your faith has saved you. Your faith has made you whole with God. It's given you right standing with the God of the universe. Your faith, because of your faith, you're no longer under condemnation for the sin in your life. You, it's no longer, you're no longer under condemnation for not practicing religion in the right way. Because of your faith in me, Jesus says, you are saved. Contrast that to the nine who didn't come back. The nine who didn't come back, what did Jesus tell them to do? He said, go show yourself to the priest. What do they do? They're on their way to the priest because Jesus told them to do that. They look down, they're healed. I'm sure they're thankful but they didn't kind of turn around. But the Samaritan, when he saw he was healed, he was thankful and he gave credit where credit was due. He worshiped at the feet of Jesus. The nine, they keep going their way. Hey man, I gotta go to the temple, man. There's this whole thing in Leviticus chapter 14. I gotta get to the temple. I gotta see the priest. I gotta get to the temple because that's where God is at. Well, what about that Jesus? I can imagine the conversation with the Samaritan. The Samaritan's like, he just healed me. I gotta go give him thanks. I gotta go worship him. No, 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 no. 
God's in the temple. We got to go to the temple. I mean, that was a nice trick that he did, but I got to go to the temple. I got to worship God where God is, and God's in the temple. Samaritan's like, man, I ain't bound by y'all's religion. I'm going back to where it's actually at, and he falls at the feet of Jesus. We see this attitude with everybody in the New Testament, it seems, all the people that are around there. It's like uh, they, they, they have this attitude of we are the people of God, and God gives us what we deserve, and we deserve good things. We are the children of Abraham. There's no sense of sin, no remorse, no desperation. They're always looking for a savior from Rome, but not a savior from their sin. They seem to be very, very comfortable in their sin. They seem to be very comfortable with the status quo. They want someone who will feed them free food, someone who will heal their diseases. They'll take all that, but they don't need or want anything else. And ultimately, they reject the very one that God sent to save their souls. It's like, give us healing, give us food, deliver us from demons, do miracles, but do not expect worship at the feet of Jesus. And here's how it translates today. You can, you can hear these stories of Jesus, and you say, man, I'll take all the good. I'll take, I'll take all of this. I'll take the dirt bikes. I'll take the motorhome. I'll take, I'll take the people that you've put in my life. I'll even acknowledge that you're God. I'll take all this, but don't expect worship. Jesus? Like to bow down at the feet of Jesus? seems like we are so often willing to say thank you for the stuff but you know what this is really meant to do this is really meant to drive us to the feet of jesus james the half brother of jesus he puts it this way he says every good gift every perfect gift is from above coming down from the father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change god isn't fickle he doesn't bless and then changes his mind every gift Every gift comes down from above, and it's meant to drive us to our knees. It's meant to show us who God is. It's meant to show us the goodness of God to drive us to our knees to say, this is good, but what I really need is Jesus. Jesus is the healer. We're not just here because God saved us from leprosy. We're not just here because God gave us a motor home or the good things that are written on these pumpkins, and they're all good things. But we're here to worship at the feet of Jesus. Bow with me. God, <clears throat> you are great, and you are good, and we are indeed thankful for the many blessings that you've given us. But I pray that these gifts will cause us to recognize our need for a Savior, as it did with the one in this story tonight. May those gathered here tonight be the one that falls at the feet of Jesus. And I know that you'll reward their faith just like you did with that one in our story. Keep your heads bowed, eyes closed. If you've never made Jesus the Lord of your life tonight, come see me after this. See the person that brought you. I'm not asking for a hand, or raised hands or anything like that, but you need to understand that the goodness of God is meant to drive us to worship Him and to know who He indeed is. Lord, bless the word that's gone out forth tonight. May it not return void. Continue to bless us as we go and draw us to yourself. In the name, the mighty name of Jesus, we say all this. Amen. Amen. Hey, thank you all for hanging out with me tonight. If you want to know more about Jesus, come see me. And uh, have a great race tomorrow. Thanks a lot.